You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell and in this episode, we're talking to Monique Richardson about managing difficult customer behavior. It's a bitter-sweet episode. Bitter? It's a terrible shame we need to talk about this at all, that for some, managing difficult customer interactions is a big part of their work. And on the sweet side, at least we have someone of Monique's experience and intellect to help us make sense of it all, to share with us some really clear principles of managing difficult people effectively. If managing unruly customer behavior is part of your job, you're in exactly the right place. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Monique Richardson. Monique Richardson, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, David. Looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it, Monique, because you're going to give me a whole bunch of handy tips for dealing with difficult customers. And you've written a fabulous little book. And by the way, I appreciate the fact that it's so little. It really does just cut to the chase. It cuts to all of your wisdom. No fluff, just gets stuck into it. It's a real readable thing that you could probably read in in knockoff in one sitting if you were really keen. So I love that for a start. But I'm intrigued, Monique, how did you get yourself in the position where you have so much expertise in dealing with difficult customers? Must be somewhat of a sad story. (laughs) I think, David, I started on the front line working in customer service, and that was at 14 years and nine months because that was the legal age when you could get a job. Mm. And so I spent my early years working in retail and hospitality and then moved into contact centres. So I was always on the front line. And I think particularly when you work in areas like telecommunications and hospitality, you really do get a lot of some of that difficult customer behaviour very early on. So I think there was always that practical element of I've been in front of the customer, I've dealt with these situations, be it phone, be it face-to-face. And then when I started working in the area of training and development and put my two passions of customer service and training together and specialised in that area, this is a topic that I've done training in for the past 20 years. So it's certainly been around for a long time and unfortunately does keep continuing. Well, you answered my next question. I was going to ask you when you went from someone who was consciously managing poor behavior from customers to someone who felt as though you had something to offer the conversation and you could start to teach other people. And Mm. you just answered that question for me. Hey, Monique, I'm going to ask you to, to rack your brain back through the archives. Can you remember the time, the very first time you were stung by a customer, put on the back foot, froze because someone was just being so outrageous or so aggressive? The the first time you were really surprised by a customer's behavior. Mm. And I think for me, working in so many roles that you might've had that person that might've been a little bit angry or a little bit upset, but I think it was when I got into hospitality. And I think once you started getting alcohol involved and Ah, I just sort of saw some of those emotions even more so when Mm. I had a very aggressive customer once that just said something that was so bad that I couldn't even repeat it. And it was just in that moment initially that I just, you know, froze initially because I was so taken aback by his behavior. So we're going to get into the guts of all the wisdom that you've gathered over the years and the way that you've been able to distill it and articulate it. But I just want to start with the 
base level, and I guess this is probably where you started your training programs, the, the idea that that there is an approach, just that basic idea that rather than just go with your gut at the time, try and work it out on your feet when you're under pressure, standing in front of a difficult customer, just the fact that there is a process, there are conceptual truisms that people can lean on in these situations, that must be a huge relief for people when they come to your training and start learning about dealing with difficult customers. Relief's a great word, David. I think it's probably the biggest thing that I see is when people start to understand, first of all, their own reaction and they understand the physiology behind that. It's almost like this, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one that reacts like that. And then once people feel that they've got a structure and a way that they can have the conversation, all of a sudden they're feeling more in control. So relief and confidence are the two things that I really see once people can take those tools away. You know, my background, I I share a little bit of background in this. It's not recent. I've been out of the education field for more than 10 years now, but I I started my time as a high school English teacher, which was a, a cool job. I really loved the literature side of it. But the problem with being a high school English teacher is that it's like the the male. The marking never stops. Mm. You, you can never relax on a weekend or watch a game of footy or anything because you've always got this pile of, of marking to do. So I eventually moved into behavior management and I spent a long time in behavior management. It was fabulous, number one, because there was no marking. The academic expectations were quite low. It was all about social skills. But number two, it really opened my eyes. This was where I got the beginning of an education and, and this insight into not just kind of shooting from the hip or going with your gut or relying on a little bit of emotional intelligence, but actually following a process when it came with difficult, in my case, it was difficult kids. And your book reminded me of a lot of what I learned through that process. I then went and became a deputy principal of schools. And you know, you talk about the experience in hospitality when you're dealing with people with a belly full of alcohol, that's a factor that really hypes them up. Another factor that really hypes people up is the love of their child. And people can become really difficult. And that question I asked you before about that first time you were really stung, I remember the first time I was really stung by a parent. It, it kind of took me aback. Even though I'd worked in behavior management, I'd worked with hundreds of really difficult kids The first time another adult stood there in front of me and showed all of these signs of being a really difficult, in essence, customer, because we were suspending her boy for for some pretty poor behavior. Uh, We just had, you know, we followed our process. We just had to suspend him. But all of a sudden it dawned on her that he was going to become her problem during the day for a week and the reaction that we got. And so my point is, despite the training I'd had, despite the experience I had, this still stung me. And I I just remember standing there freezing. I didn't know what to say. I couldn't remember the process. I, I couldn't work my way out of it because it was just so over the top. So I bet that happens as well. With people who come along and do training, they start to realize that there is a theoretical way through this. There is a way to rationalize and, and work through a, a sensible process. There's concepts to lean on. But even so, that can be hard to recall at the right time when you first get started. Do you find that with the people who come to your training? And indeed, did you find that yourself when you when you were younger in your career? Yes, I think two things. When I was younger, it takes 
practice. You know, it's it's a real skill. So mm. I think there's two things, David. There's the, the theoretical element, but there's also the practice. Mm. So the more practice, the more it becomes a skill that we can use. But I still find that when, you know, people do that training, that it's like a, a, a muscle. You've got to keep exercising mm. it and practicing it. So we mightn't always get it right the first time or I might feel a little bit more confident in this area next time I know I can do this. But being just taken away or having, you know, almost that breath taken away in that heat of the moment mm. can still happen because we're not always prepared for the person, uh, the language, the response and mm. the way that they act in that moment. So we're human and, you know, we're humans dealing with humans and that can be really tough. And I know now in hindsight, because of the further education I've had in the area, that I was having an amygdala hijack. I My lid, had, you know, the Dan Siegel model, my lid had been flipped my prefrontal cortex was out of operation and I was just working on that kind of reptile brain, that survival thing that tells you either freeze, fight or run away. And and I, I know that now and I look back on that moment, I can kind of see it like it was in a movie. I can see myself just standing there frozen, not, not, not must have looked like an idiot, not having a clue what to do. But we'll get there. We'll get that out of you tonight. Let's start with the way that you start your book at the high level, the organizational level, really, the approach, the triad of responsibility, why is that so important to understand and how did you land on that conceptually? When you look at difficult customer behavior and certainly from all of the stories that I'd heard, all of the observations, and I spend a lot of time with leaders, a lot of time with team members and within organizations, it just became really clear how important first and foremost it was that there was leadership that really supported difficult customer behavior. And that could be anything from the, you know, how they support the team members, particularly organizationally, making sure that there are those policies and procedures in place, which outlines unacceptable customer conduct. So the team are really clear about what to do when they're faced with a, you know, really, you know, whether it's swearing, whether it's threats, whether it's violence, that they know what to do in that situation. So that's a core both organisational and also leadership responsibility. The second part of that triad is around the team member and they too have a responsibility in how they respond and it's not an easy skill. It's one of those skills that I always look at and say people working with customers, it's not for the faint-hearted. You know, it requires a huge amount of skill and discipline but the team member also has a responsibility to respond in a professional and respectful manner. So we go into how to do that. But the third part of that responsibility is actually the customer and customers have a right to be frustrated. They have a right to complain. They have a right to be upset, but there is also a big distinction between somebody who is upset and a customer that is exhibiting unacceptable customer conduct. And the customer also needs to be made aware of that by the organization that there are boundaries that they must not cross. That triad of responsibility is so powerful. As you talk through it, as I read about it in your book, even just thinking about my own experience, and I don't want to bore people with my experience, but that's how I'm relating it, is the idea of, say, you're working in an organization and you've just had a horrendous experience with a really difficult customer. The first part of the triad of responsibility is leadership. I imagine you see this sometimes, the idea that a staff member has had a really difficult time, but then the leadership doesn't know how to handle it. And because the loud complaining customer or the parent in the school or whoever it might be, they can actually cause trouble for the organization. By wanting to avoid trouble, the leader can make the mistake of not supporting their staff members. And that's 
that leaves a really hollow feeling for staff members when they don't feel supported. So they've had a tough experience with a customer and they've taken it to their manager and they're getting nothing back. But then you can't just expect to get that support without the, the team member responding respectfully and appropriately and putting into place the training that they've had. So here we're starting to form this triangle here. There's more than just one level of responsibility here. And then of course, the customer's responsibility. We can't just let customers, no matter how important they are to the business or the organization, behave any way they want. There is a level of responsibility here that comes with their rights as a customer and that completes the triad. I really like that. You can't have any one of those three without the other. You can't just insist that my manager support me without me playing my role as a member of the team and responding appropriately and respectfully and et cetera with the customer's rights and responsibilities. I, I really like that. And let's roll in then, Monique, to the idea about the fight, flight, and freeze. Now, everyone listening has heard about heard those terms before. We know how powerful they are. We know that they're part of us as human beings, as former monkeys. Tell us why it's so appropriate or, or relevant in this topic. Because it's the first thing that happens for that team member or leader, for that matter, that's dealing with that customer. And what I find is that when people start describing their reactions, because I often, you know, will start off by having that discussion, you know, what happens for you? And people talk about feeling anxious, they might feel defensive, they might feel angry themselves, they're feeling shaky, they're feeling hot, they're feeling short of breath, and they're having this complete physiological response. And some people don't actually understand why. And what they then put that down to is I'm bad at dealing with difficult customer behavior rather than recognizing that it's a physiological reaction that is happening to them that's been around for all of these, you know, many, many years. So once they understand that, they know then that they can do something with it. So first of all, I think, David, it normalizes the response for people. But secondly, when they realize that they can then move to some techniques such as breathing, that that can then help to be able to really be a way that they can choose to respond in that moment rather than react. So I'd talk about it as a really empowering belief that once they understand why this happens, I know why now, I know it's okay, it's normalized, and now I can take some steps to do something about it. So that very powerful concept, another point you make well in your book, is part of the skill here is learning to respond rather than react. That's the difference between letting my amygdala run out of control and, and put me in survival mode and keeping my my thinking brain, my limbic system intact and giving me the opportunity to think through this rationally. If my limbic system stays intact, I stay as a, a modern, developed human being with all of my intellect, then I'm able to respond. But if I go into reptile brain and I go into fight or flight mode, I'm just reacting to what's in front of me. Is, have I got that right? Correct. And we can see that when we do, you know, the, and when we look at that fight and flight, the fighting back, we know that that's never going to end well. And we can't just say to that customer, you know, sorry, I can't hear you, bad line, you know, and, and run away from that customer. <laughs> the only time I've always said that that is going to be appropriate is if that there is a, a threat to safety or, you know, personal well-being. So, yeah, that concept is just so important in, in understanding ourselves. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. 
It's when we're in that fight, flight or freeze mode, the amygdala hijack, that we often do things that we regret, don't we? When we get our rational brain back, we calm down, we get control of ourselves again and we look at the thing that we've just done and we kind of feel ashamed of it. We wonder where the thinking came. But the answer is the thing we weren't thinking, were we? We were just reacting. Correct. And that's where the breathing technique that I always ask the team to focus on first and foremost and being able to just do that pause button. It doesn't have to be long, but just that pause and that breathing avoids that regret response that we can feel Mm. later on. So, you know, we mightn't always get it exactly right, but at least if we're aware of it and we can use that breathing technique, it does make a massive difference to how we respond. You know, Monique, I'd like to think of myself as a calm, rational person and I am most of the time, but I actually had one of these last week. It's, I can't remember the last time it happened to me where I did something that I look back on and I'm totally ashamed of. I, I do a lot of swimming and I don't know if you've ever swum, anyone who, listening who's ever swum, battling, there's lane rage, just like there's, there's road rage, battling the public. You've got, a, you know, especially in summer, you've got a million swimmers all trying to swim in a lane. And this one guy was just swimming down the middle of the lane rather than over to the left. And he kept on clipping me as he went past. Every time he just clipped me with his arm. And one time I just saw, at, got at the end of the lane and he happened to be there. And I said, mate, you got to stay left. And I, I felt annoyed, but in control. But his reaction was, I am staying left. He kind of, he kind of, you know, sort of threw it back at me. And I, I, I didn't say anything more, thank goodness. I mean, I just swam away, but I felt like my lid had been flipped. I felt like I was in mm. an amygdala hijack. And my point is, I love talking about swimming, but my main point is that even <laughs> when you think you're on top of this stuff and you think you understand it, there can still be moments that catch us off guard. Yes. And I think whether or not that's in work, whether or not that's with our family, whether that's driving, whether that's you know swimming, at least you could swim away, David, that was a positive. But you can <laughs> see that in those instances, we've still got a human response. But I like to think that any time if we don't react in the way that we wished we had of, what's the learning from that and what could I do differently next time? So I think even just that self-awareness to know that perhaps there's something else I could have done or I wished I had have done, we can just use that for learning for next time. Mm, That's very interesting. Another anecdote is I remember as a young teacher, I used to find it very impressive when I saw older, more experienced teachers remain really calm in the face of what I saw as pressure But what they were just saying was another bit of behavior that they'd probably seen a million times before, and they'd learned to go through the process. And they didn't lose their mind. They didn't lose their limbic system. They weren't hijacked by the amygdala. They just kept thinking rationally. They stayed calm. And I remember as a very young teacher, I didn't understand any of this stuff, but I knew, I I looked at that, I knew I wanted that. I want to be like that. I want to be able to stay calm, to have a plan, to think it through to make the situation better rather than make it worse with my own emotions. And that's where the experience that we have is a great teacher. I often use that term complaint fit. I sometimes work with teams that, you know, deal with complaints every day, their level of fitness or their ability or Mm. capacity to respond because of that high level of experience is going to be much more than perhaps somebody who's just started in that role. So I would imagine, you know, particularly in in teaching and just knowing the huge amount of respect that I have for educators and and teachers, that amount of experience and and that doing that daily is why with experience also comes better responses. Hey, is is that it? You've just made me think, is that a danger role? The kind of role that doesn't get to practice this all the time 
but might have it happen to them every now and then. And when it does, it might be bad. So you've got someone here who's not fit in in dealing with this. They're not difficult customer fit, but it might happen from time to time. Is that a danger role for you as a consultant or a developer in this area? The big one that I see as the biggest danger is lack of training. And so if there hasn't Mm. been any training at all in how to be able to manage and deal with difficult customer behaviour, at least if people have had the exposure and they've got the knowledge, it might be there. And particularly if we've had some time to practice those skills, certainly may catch them more off guard than people who are dealing with that all the time. And there still can be people that have to deal with this regularly that are still working on, you know, controlling that response. But I feel the biggest danger is when people don't have any training or any support in how to deal with this. Makes sense. All right. Tell us, Monique, about the HEAT method. What's the HEAT method all about? The HEAT method is a way that you can structure a conversation to be able to really take control. So I always put the breathing sitting above the method, but it's an acronym. So it's a well-known acronym that can be used to be able to have a structured approach to the conversation. So with the H, it stands for hearing the customer out. So just letting them vent, just letting them talk, just letting them vent their frustration and using all of those skills of active listening and just giving them our full attention. So we can really try and get a bit of an idea about the issue. And I always recommend at the end of that hearing them out to then just summarize you know, your understanding of the issue. So it might be, you know, Bill, I want to make sure that I've understood you correctly and I I recap my understanding. So once the customer feels heard, it's really the first step in the diffusing. The second step is empathizing. And this is where there is an opportunity to create an emotional connection with the customer. And when things go wrong for customers, they will often describe how they're feeling and they'll say things like, I'm so frustrated or I'm so angry, you know, I'm so upset. So it's so important to validate and acknowledge the customer's emotions through a really genuine and sincere empathy statement. So if the customer said that they're frustrated that they've been waiting, you know, in the queue for 20 minutes, it might be something as simple as, look, I can appreciate how frustrated you are that there has been a longer than normal delay today. I'm just finding a way to validate their emotions. Once we've done that and we've heard them out and we've empathized, you know, we do find that the customer does start, you know, to calm down more. De-escalate. The A step, correct. The A step is I've, you know, really looked at two parts of that A and the first one is around the apologizing and in some instances an apology is definitely warranted. You know, and that might even be I'm, you know, sorry that there has been a delay, I'm sorry that there's been an issue, I'm sorry that you've emailed us three times and nobody's got back to you. And just that power of the genuine apology again can be enough to be able to just diffuse the customer. So once the hearing them out, the empathizing and the apologizing, it's very much dealing with the emotional side of the conversation. And then we want to start moving to logic. So I always recommend then asking the customer permission using that seeking permission technique to then say to the customer, do you mind if I ask you a few questions and then start getting into the problem solving? Because at the end of the day, they want a solution, you know, or they want their problem solved or they want a response. And that final step is around taking ownership. And taking ownership usually comes down to three things. Number one, I can fix it there and then for the customer. The second is where I might have to do some investigation. I might need to follow up and then get back to the customer and commit to get back to them. 
And the final one, and I think that's the most difficult of all, is where the customer is upset, they are angry, or they've made a complaint and there isn't actually anything that we could do for them. And that could be, for example, because of privacy or legal or other reasons. And so that then becomes, how do I deliver that message to the customer with empathy? You can just see how powerful that simple acronym is, HEAT. H stands for hearing the customer out and recap so that you're genuinely listening to them. They can hear that you've genuinely heard what they're saying. You, you've let them have their say. E is set for empathizing. For, it's an opportunity to create a, a, a real emotional connection. You, you really understand what they're feeling. A is for apologizing and being genuine, taking responsibility on behalf of the organization. And then the second part of A is asking permission. Can I do you mind if I take your information to another department, ask you these questions, have a look into your file and see where this has been? And the T is for taking ownership. I really like it, Monique. And what it does is it gives everyone listening that process to lean on when they're feeling under pressure. They can see, hey, that this could be a problem here. I've got a hot one standing in front of me or on the phone. All right, heat. Work through that four-step process. And and you can see, you can we can hear for yourself. We've all been customers, whether we're in this field or not. We're also on the other side of it as well, regularly. And you know yourself when things don't go well, if someone just does any of these, even just one of these things well, you kind of are willing to bail out of your complaint. I mean, at each of these points, I had memories of situations I'd had where, yeah, I saw someone do that really well and it just made me feel better. It's like, okay, yeah, you let me get off that chest. You really did listen to me and I really appreciated that. And we can all see the other side. When, when you just can't even get your story out and they start kind of going on the defensive or start worrying about their own process from their end, you know, I'm sorry, sir, but you've called the wrong department, all that kind of stuff. That makes it really difficult. The empathizing, and we all know whether that's genuine or not. That person standing in front of you as the angry customer, no matter how angry they are, they know if you're being genuine with your E, with your empathizing or, or not. And the apologizing on behalf of the organization, they make such a difference. I remember my wife and I had a, a, an abysmal experience once at the beginning of a trip on a plane. And one of the flight attendants came up to us at as we boarded and, and finally got going and said, look, I've heard what you've just went through and I'm just so sorry that happened to you. And he, you know, he kept talking and he gave us a bottle of wine or something. And then he walked away and we just looked at each other and said, wasn't that amazing? I'm totally okay with our experience now because he was just so good and so genuine in his apology. And the last one, take ownership you know, Monique, there is nothing more frustrating that when you ring, say, a certain mobile phone company or a internet company or anyone else, and they say, well, we can't do anything about that. That's not our department. You'll have to call this number. And you just think, hey, look, I don't care how you work internally. From my point of view, you are the company. And I've got you on the phone after being on hold for X number of minutes. I just want you to take ownership for this. And that point at which organizations or or representatives for, or from organizations refuse to take ownership, that can be a real hot button moment, can't it? Absolutely. You've raised three really critical points there, David. I think the first one is the temptation to jump into problem solving rather than you know listening and the empathy and the acknowledging. We're often problem solvers and we want to jump straight into that problem solving. Because you've got other stuff to do. Correct. And so that can then have a, a negative impact on the interaction. Correct. The second thing is your story you know, of, of you and your wife on the plane also illustrates just the power of great service recovery, somebody mm -hmm. having a great mindset, 
a great approach. And just even the way that you described that, that was such genuine empathy. So you can just see how much that impacted you as a customer. And the third one is, you know, the great quote that, you know, when something goes wrong, just help me fix it. And so maybe we're not the area or department that can help that customer, but being able to say, let me see if I can find the right person or I'll find this department. But it also goes back to how do we design that customer experience in the first place to make sure that when things, you know, do go wrong, that we've also got the right processes and systems also set up to be able to help the customer. I love that line. When something goes wrong, just help me fix it. And that's what you want as a customer. And I I can't remember if I've specifically had this this experience, but it sounds like a memory I'm dredging up of someone saying to me, look, this is not normally our area, but because of the situation, I'm, I'm going to do what I can and I'm going to look into this for you. And you just feel that sense of relief. And what a smart thing for an organization to do from a customer relationship point of view. It leads me to a question that's just popped into my mind. How hard do you have to work to convince senior leadership that this stuff is important? that rather than timing calls and getting people off the phone quickly and using that as a KPI, that it's actually worth investing in your staff, getting them to understand this stuff so they can delight customers. Because there's a line there between not just calming down difficult customers, but you're very close to delighting good customers, aren't you? When that something's gone wrong, this is just such a powerful opportunity for service recovery. And we do see that, that in cases where things are handled well and the person has been able to help that customer, that it can actually statistically strengthen loyalty. So, you know, there's always that challenge of, you know, the efficiency and then also looking at time with customer. But the focus on getting things right the first time and being able to help the customer then and there so there's no other rework or things that have to be done, Mm -hmm. we can see how much it actually ends up costing organizations if they then have to go here, go there, and just that whole customer effort can also mean that if something has gone wrong and it's not handled well, that that is usually it. You know, customers, you know, will have a a point where they will just say, that's it and I'm not going to engage with that organization again. But when the team are trained and empowered and they know that they can help and they've got the tools and the resources we can see how many of these situations can be turned around for the customer and the team member feels great about it as well. Hey, Monique, when you're not being Monique, the behavior or difficult customer consultant, you're just being Monique, mum and a lady about town. What do you observe with customer service? Is it generally pretty good? Do you come across customer service that that impresses you or unimpresses you more often? I would have to say impresses. And I think that's because I always look for the good in others as well. I also tend to be a big supporter of local business. So I do, for example, you know, shop locally. I, you know, have great relationships with my local Coles where I think I am there at least every day. So, you know, passing Christmas presents to the team members is common, you know, because they become part of your world. So I think in terms of the organizations that I I choose to engage with, I would just have to say overall, I have great service. And then when I do, I had one the other day with a, a new, you know, internet connection that I did ask the team member if I could speak to his manager and he wasn't available. And I was then, you know, able to get his email so I could also send that compliment through. But like anything, as a customer, I also can see when things go wrong, usually 
I can sort of diagnose why. Mm. And it's often not the team member. It's something else. It's the process. It's the technology that you end up talking into the phone going, help me because you haven't got the right number. So, you know, we always look at great customer experience by design. And so when that has been designed to be able to support the team, that's when you great service. But, you know, I think when things go wrong, for me as a customer, I also am just so conscious of the person that I'm interacting with that if things do go wrong, I have a way that I can then be able to let that point be known, you know, without becoming, you know, irate or angry. Because usually if you go back three steps, there's something else that's caused it. It's very rarely that actual person. Yeah, that's good insight. You're absolutely right about that. All right, Monique, I've asked you to finish with, I don't know how many you've got, your top three or five tips. So someone's been listening to this, they've totally bought into your process. They love the idea of being a a more consciously aware manager of difficult customers. What are your tips that you can leave us with to help us remember this stuff at the right time? So David, my summary tips would be, first of all, remember to breathe. When you're first faced with that angry, upset, difficult customer behavior, feeling that, you know, fight and flight, freeze response kick in and all of those, you know, signals around you is just remembering to breathe while they're talking, while they're on the phone in front of you. Use that pause just to be able to do that breathing and we can see how much that just helps to be able to calm down. My second tip would be around mindset and I like to think of every you know, interaction or complaint or even a customer that's being difficult as an opportunity to be able to help them. So I think it's always about looking behind the behavior and just looking at what's actually going on for that person and thinking about how I can help them. So mindset, you know, is really critical. My third tip would be using the HEAT method, just practice it. It does, you know, work. I get so much feedback from my workshops and sessions about how much this helps people. So putting that heat method into practice and using it as a way to structure the conversation and even just knowing that you might be through it and if the customer starts venting again, just repeat that process and they do eventually correct, uh, calm down. My fourth tip would just be around making sure that as a team member, and this is also for leaders, that everyone is aware of what is the unacceptable customer conduct policy. For our teams and for our team members, it's really, really critical that they are aware of the line between when a customer's behavior is, you know, difficult, but when does it actually become unacceptable? And whether or not that is swearing, insults, personal insults, racial abuse, threats, you know, violence, you know, anything physical, that that is unacceptable customer conduct. And everyone in the organization needs to know that policy so they know what actions to be able to take. Where the line is. Correct. And my last tip is just around self-care. Anyone that ever has to deal with difficult customer behavior, it's tough. And, you know, that is leaders to make sure that they're available for debriefing for their teams and in really bad, you know, instances of that. Um, It may even be offering the employee assistance, you know, program. But for our team members that are out there dealing with this on the front line or on the telephone or written or social just to be aware of when they feel that it's affecting them and to use some of those self-care strategies around whether it's getting up and having a stretch, you know, grabbing a cup of tea, going for a walk at lunch, spending time at the end of the day, you know, whether it's swimming or doing things that you love because taking care of yourself so you can take care of the customer is absolutely critical. So knowing if there's been an instance that's affected you and knowing 
that, you know, there's things that you can also put in place to be able to take care of yourself is really important. They are five nuggets of gold. Thank you so much, Monique. What a wonderful place to leave it. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us on the Team Guru podcast. Thank you so much for having me, David. It's been awesome talking to you. Thank you. And that was Monique Richardson. Loved it. Tough topic, but she knows her stuff and her advice was so clear. And those nuggets we heard at the end. Number one, remember to breathe. Number two, check your mindset. Look for the opportunity to help. Number three, use the HEAT model. Be proactive. Number four, be aware of unacceptable customer conduct. Know where the line is. And number five, self-care. Debrief with your manager, your colleagues, your family. It's important to download. And that heat model, I can hear you wondering. It's the structure to take control. H, hearing the customer out and recap. E, empathizing, create an emotional connection. A, apologize, be genuine, and ask permission to ask questions. And T, take ownership, be the one to help solve the problem. As always, I'll share these tips and the rest of the lessons I learned from my conversation with Monique on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Oh,